Yeah, hold that, please. Level five. Thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to urge in the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to urge in the Channelized Bimbingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the following on podcast from Talk Sport. Today, delighted to bring you a, a quite brilliant interview featuring the former Surrey skipper and England international, the all rounder Adam Hollyoak, uh, speaking with uh, our very own Steve Harmison, former uh, county championship and Ashes winner, and Leon McKenzie, the, uh, the former professional footballer. Uh, it also was uh, aired as part of My Sporting Life, looking back at Adam Hollyoak's uh, career. Uh, on and off the field. It's, uh, it features some really emotional moments and uh, some moments of, of real triumph as well as humour running throughout. So uh, so enjoy, really, uh, and a big thanks to Adam uh, for uh, for taking part. My Sporting Life uh, with Leo McKenzie, Steve Harmison, and their guest is uh, the former England international Surrey skipper, Adam Hollier. On DAB, Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM, after the lights go out, on TalkSport. I'm Steve Harmison. I represented England in 63 tests, 58 one-day nationals, and won the Ashes twice with my country. And I'm Leon McKenzie. I've experienced life as both a Premier League footballer and professional boxer. In this series, we focus on elite athletes and their transition from their sporting careers to civilian life and the struggles which have followed. Both Leon and I have had issues dealing with day-to-day life since departing the sporting arena. And during this series, we'll be speaking to several sports personalities who've experienced similar battles following their careers in elite sport. Tonight on TalkSport, we're in conversation with a man who's captained both Surrey and England's one-day side, as well as someone who's competed professionally in boxing and mixed martial arts, Adam Holyoke. Well, that was short, and it's hooked away... Six runs. Oh, well bowled. Beautifully bowled. Well, there's nothing that uh, Adam Hollyoak can't do now. Well, fine shot. That could well be Hollyoak's 50. And that's a fine performance by Adam Hollyoak. Adam Hollyoak enjoyed a unique career in the sporting arena, competing professionally in cricket, boxing and mixed martial arts. He is best known for his time as an all-rounder in cricket, captaining the England one-day side to the 1997 Sharjah Cup and playing in a total of four tests and 35 one-day internationals. 
In county cricket, he captained Surrey from 1997 until 2003, leading the side to nine titles, including the county championship in 1999, 2000 and 2002, and he was named a Wisden Cricketer of the Year for 2003. His time in boxing saw him fight in five pro bouts, winning three, and in recent times he has returned to cricket in a coaching capacity. We'll be joined by Adam in a moment. Steve, Adam is someone who you know from your cricket days. What can we expect from this interview? This is one I've been looking forward to. This is one I've been dreading. Um, Since the minute Adam agreed to come on, we are going to laugh. We are going to cry. Very, very close to his younger brother who sadly killed in a car crash. He is a great character. A man who's gone through extreme highs in cricket, extreme lows in life. But what a man. And if you've got Adam Holyoke as a friend, um, what a friend you've got. After the lights go out on Talk Sport. Well, let's give a big welcome to tonight's guest on After the Lights Go Out here on Talk Sport. It's a very good evening to a very good friend of mine, Adam Holyoke. How are you doing, Adam? Hey, mate. Hey, guys. How are you? You're very well. Very well. It's good, mate. Adam, you retired from first-class cricket in 2004. You're just 31. What were the factors in that decision? I don't know. It's like, I, I think I've probably lied a few times in the past about this. Um, I think I wanted to sort of play it cool and just say that I'm done with it and I wanted to leave kind of on those terms. But I think, you know, I was probably struggling after my brother's death and mm. and some other factors, you know. I mean, it gets hard, doesn't it, mm. towards the end of your career. You've got to probably, rather than trying to find whether you're good enough, all those things that creep into your mind as an athlete, I think you've just got to, later in your career, you're just trying to drive yourself on to just achieve standards. Mm. And with everything that was going on in my life, with my brother dying and other things, I just... I just didn't have the energy for it. So I hate to say I probably took the easy route out and and quit, which is probably not usually in my nature, but, but I did. This is the third series we've done this, and this is the hardest part of it for me because my first trip into sort of senior cricket was England under-19s. One of my first roommates was Ben Holyoke. Being with Ben was fun. It was, it's been, it's like being like work with you now. What was it like playing and, you know, making your England debut with a brother, but being around your brother, seeing him grow up playing for Surrey? At the time, I don't think you really appreciate the gravity of what's going on. You know, we just started, we were just a couple kids just started out playing and it was a pretty easy path, probably even easier for Ben. You know, he just got a game for England when he was 18. So it was like, so he didn't really have, but, uh, even for me, I mean, I had to probably do a lot more to get my get out of my ability what I did. And um, but even for me, it was a pretty cruisy road, and everything just seemed to be. Oh yeah, well, I, I look back, and when we made our test debut, it was just like, oh, this was always going to happen, and didn't seem like that big a deal. But then, just recently, with the Curran boys playing, and then um, who's those other brothers who just played? Just Overton, the Overton brothers. Sorry, um, and just seeing people write. You know, these are the only brothers to play this century or, you know, even back then it was the, that millennium. Like, mm. you know, we were the only... And you look back and you go, wow, that was actually that was actually something, wasn't it? But mm. at the time, it, I mean, you're proud, of course you are, but you just don't realise how mm. big it is until afterwards, I don't think. The main thing for me is, which I, I can relate to, when you lose, like, a, a family member, like you've done... I lost, like, my sister to suicide, I've lost my uncle to suicide, and there's so many things that, you know, it's really sort of touching them and I can see when you say that Steve that 
it's how you sort of approach this with Adam because it's it's so delicate and because mm. you know them both so well, it's it's always important. It's what makes it special to have these these conversations. It makes it special to to really highlight the things that happen in 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 life that sport doesn't prepare us for. With Ben uh, passing, do you feel that was probably the the real reason to why you sort of had to retire in that respect? Did it affect your mind? Yeah, it really did affect my mind. It really did. And it's weird looking back on that whole period and and trying to like process what happened. But, you know, like I remember him from such a young age and the people who know him, I mean, you know him from professional cricket ages. Mm. And like, But uh, when I think back to him, I, I, we think back to when he was six or seven mm. or, you know, and playing in the backyard and we've all got our family and we've all got those memories with our own family, but... And then the journey of grief is such a strange one. It's, it's such a strange... It's hard, like, isn't it? Because the, um, at first there's just denial and and then there's all the different stages. And every time I think of, oh, this is what grief's about, there's another stage. So at first it was just denial. I, just couldn't, I was expecting him to just walk through the door and then you move on to the next stage and then there's anger, like, why does this happen to him? Like, why? Um, and then you go through trying to process it probably again and then you think you're through it and then after five years I, it hit me hard again mm. after I'd retired and then all of a sudden there's another stage different phases isn't different it? different phases different phases and you're coming back to the Surrey team without your brother that's that's hard reminders. Yourself, isn't it? Mm-hmm. yeah and just being back here mm. it's just simple things like you know it doesn't necessarily have to be a death but you have sometimes it's a song or a smell or a place and these things bring back memories, like really vivid memories. You came back a couple of months later, mm. back into the Surrey dressing room. Was there any back of your mind going, I can't go back in that? It was weird. Um, again, if we go back to what we're talking about, the couple of stages of grief, I always say grief's relative to what you've been through before. I mean, one of the hardest things I ever had was when we lost Graham Kersey. You talked yeah. about, so before Graham Kersey died in 1996, I'd finished an England A tour out there and then I stayed behind for a week and we just hung out and then he dropped me to the airport and on the way from the airport driving up to Carl Rackman's farm he crashed and died so by the time I landed that had happened. Mm. Before that the worst thing that had ever happened to me is I scored a duck in a game of cricket. There was like do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that hit me really really hard hard. and I couldn't understand why this was happening. It's like if you take a toy off of your kid when they're two years old, they go to pieces like it's the end of the world because that's the worst thing that's ever happened to them at that time. And as we go through life, unfortunately, or it's just the cycle of life, we encounter these things and the longer we're here, the more chance there is for these things to happen. But up until that point, nothing had, like I said, the worst thing had happened is I'd played badly in a game of cricket and I thought I'd drive home slumped over my steering wheel because I'd scored a duck or something. Mm -hmm. But then it sort of extends you and... Well, that hit me really hard, Graham Kersey's death. Um, probably my one of my top five friends in the world at that time. And then, yeah, then my brother as well. Yeah. So it was just... How uh, important were you sorry, teammates? The most important thing. Your family's really important, but I think also you're kind of conscious not to try and bring them down as well, so you don't necessarily tell them the negative stuff that's going on. You try and... But with your mates, you can... Like I said, you said we had great guys in our team. I was able to be vulnerable in front of, and, and it's not in my nature, you know, I mean, yeah. it's not in my nature to be um, vulnerable. Yeah. So, but because of the guys in my team, I, I was able to 
I never, I don't think I totally ever showed exactly how vulnerable I was, but mm. um, that's interesting. It's always like the same. I, I was quite a bubbly person in in the change rooms when when I was in in the teams that I was in, and I can see you're a bubbly character, Adam, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, like when you've got that sort of close unity within your team, and you you're going in. There's a big form of acting that comes into play, you know. Yeah. You know, with us guys, there's a big form of acting that comes. To, I can't tell you how many times I've acted going into a change room, mm. and they know what I'm like and my personality. But sometimes I'd go into the change room, and I'm literally dying inside. Mm. But yes. how I actually communicate and articulate that? Oh yeah, I'm just me still, and yeah. I'm actually like struggling. Mm. And you are, you are close with your teammates, but you, fall into you, a role, you, you find it hard yeah. to communicate. I don't know if you have that, Steve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah. times where you feel like, I'm really not doing mm. well, but let me just, I there don't want to bring my teams down. I don't want to bring the energy down. I went through the same thing. Obviously, yeah. I came back after my brother's died, um, other of his death, and I actually rang back and said, hey, yeah, yeah, I just need a couple of days off. I'll be back on Monday. I just think I was in shock at the time. I literally, I'd just been told, he'd, he'd, he'd been told he was dead, died half an hour ago. So I rang up Keith Medlicott, our coach, and just said, hey, look, Ben's just died. I won't get on the flight tomorrow, but I'll be back on Monday. Mm. And he said, mate, you're in shock. Mm. Like, our mind is the most scariest thing. Like for me, people said to me, oh my God, you're handling it so well. But it's mm. like because of our professionalism, mm. and I'm not saying we're amazing professionals or any of that, but it's just the nature of professional mm. sport. You are engrossed in what you have to be, otherwise you just get found out. So therefore, your mind isn't free to go off in the area that it wants to go. When you're left alone with your thoughts, you're on there. You've got to give. Your has to think about what you're doing. You can't. There's no space to be out on the football pitch thinking about your kids at home or or mm. something. You know. Oh, you know. I didn't put the rubbish out. So therefore, just by the nature, very nature of mm. your sport, you can't go off thinking about the real traumas in your life. Mm. So. I went into the ground. I'd get in there. I'd, all that banter before the game started. Mm-hmm. That great. So that would my mind would be off it, and I'm engrossed. I'm in it. Play the game six seven hours. Come off the field. Banter with the players. I'm in a hundred percent. Putting my little facade on. My acting. Yeah. Get in the car. Drive home. Get home. Absolutely go to pieces because I've now all I've done is that twelve hours that I've been acting for. You need a release for mm-hmm. that. So now it just comes out at home. Mm-hmm. People used to go up to my wife and say, wow, it's unbelievable how he's handling it. He's so strong. And she used to say, she's come and go, you don't see him at home. Him, yeah. You don't see him at home. So, and how difficult was that for your wife? Well, we divorced. So. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> probably yeah. pretty. I mean, not, you, not off the back of that. You, you, probably you, because you, I was just a bad husband. But, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, um, but it, it was a tough time for her. And I, I 100% changed as a person. Um, it changed me. I don't know how those things, they change you. That's mm. just, that's, who you are you are sort of you become your journey don't you still to come on after the lights go out on talk sport and i went to the airport i didn't really read the details of what bankruptcy entailed so mm-hmm. i got to the airport went my passport and went to go to the thing and the next minute i was surrounded by four feds they're just like they thought i was trying to skip the country to get out i was like and you can't travel so yeah i had to get dragged back through customs they wanted to handcuff me i said that's not happening. After the lights go out, Leon McKenzie and Steve Harmison in conversation with Adam Hollyoak on Talk Sport. You're listening to After the Lights Go Out on Talk Sport with me, Steve Harmison, and Leon McKenzie. Tonight's guest is a former England and Surrey cricketer, Adam Hollyoak. Adam, since retiring, 
you had your share of well-publicised financial problems. After the cricket career was over, you returned to Western Australia to work for the family business, a development investment capital company. Was it just the crash that made that go wrong? Uh, yeah, that was that was one definitely one thing. I mean, um, I think probably it would be easy to hide behind the crash and just mm. say it was that because so many people got smashed by that. But there's a number of sort of factors in it. I'd done pretty well during my time playing cricket. I didn't get paid what they get paid now or anything like that. But um, as soon as I got any kind of money together back then, I bought a, I bought a property in Clapham just purely because... I couldn't be bothered driving all the way out from out there, so I just tried to get somewhere close, and then that area took off, and and then I thought, wow, I've made more money from this property than I have from playing cricket. So then I kept on, so I just kept on buying properties, just mm. just getting more and more and more. By the time I finished, I had four properties in London, and they were all gone up like exponentially. So I thought I was Richard Branson. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I mean, I hadn't, I didn't know anything else other than success on the cricket field mm. or financial success i was like well that's just the way to go so i'd never experienced the downturn in the economy i'd never experienced anything like that so i just think we just a little bit of going into it a little bit without like i said i thought i was bill gates and i thought i was the financial guru but in reality i'd just been fortunate with a few things that i'd done and i was quite inexperienced and then also i put all my um all the stuff i did was in my name and I'd sign personal guarantees so when that company went down it took me personally with it so not quite as smart as I thought I was <laughs> so um, but there's just another another thing to deal with and it's just weird because it was hard but also I started I came from nothing anyway so mm. after you know the first six months I was like oh this is terrible this is so bad and then and then one day I was like actually I'm not doing anything any different here my, mm. my house is a bit smaller and my car's a bit slower drive fast anyway and my friends are it sorted my friends out because the ones mm-hmm. who really liked me stayed with me yeah and the ones who didn't took off so it was like wow this is actually not too bad and like you know it's not like i'm living in the street or anything mm-hmm. like that i've you know obviously not incredibly well off or anything like that but I, i'm happy you know like i'm just like i'm living in the moment i just love the company of my, my kids and my friends and i don't need a lot i, I just and that probably if that hadn't it's, happened it's lessons lessons and then the other thing which came about is that I had to hustle I had to try and how am I going to feed my family and then the things I've done in the quest to do that I would never have done if I'd just been in that apathetic state of having finances at my disposal I I mean the money I had I could not have spent I looked at it I could not have spent it in 20 lifetimes the way I live I mean you just look at my clothes, mate. I don't, <laughs> I've got no, I don't wear terrible clothes. I don't, I don't like cars. I don't gamble. I don't drink a lot. So I lead a pretty simple life. I just enjoy hanging with my mates. So I don't need money. So, mm. But it took me to lose it to actually realise right. that. Right. That's exactly what I was just going to say. Yeah. Like sometimes you have to lose before you win again. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I lost everything as well mm. in, in terms of I've experienced money mm. and I've experienced not having it. But the interesting thing about that as well is it made me such a better person mm. when I lost everything. And I'm mm. talking, you know, we go through the divorces and stuff yeah. like that, right? And when that all was taken away from me, it strips you right back to actually looking at everything. And even with, like, your circles and mm. everything that comes with the high life and all that. And again, we find it within ourselves, like, I had to go out and feed my fam. I had to go and get a job. Mm. Like, that was the reality for me, like, after football... I had to go and work 
but it was such a humbling experience. It, it brings such a different balance to your life. And thinking like, okay, yeah, once once upon a time, it's on a thousand, thousand pounds a week and all that love and tension that you get that comes with it. Yeah. And um, when you lose everything, you really do win sometimes. Mm. You appreciate your friends are then. Yeah. It's hard work to be around people who have hit the rock bottom. Yeah. So they need to be really care about you to hang around you because it's very easy if someone's going through a hard time to just not answer the phone, ask that person again, ring it. So you do really find that out. You find out the people who really do like you for you and not for what you've got or what you can do for them. So, because mm. when you've got nothing, you can't do much for yeah. people. So, how know. difficult was you know the, was it on the sort of family as well? You because you you had to go bankrupt. Mm-hmm, that's right, and yeah. that is bottom. That is bottom. Yeah. What is it? What does bankrupt mean in, in in Australia? How difficult was was that? It was tough. I mean, what sort of what sort of money are we talking here oh, if you don't mind me no asking. like well a lot what, what? so i had about four or five million dollars of my own money and the company was worth tens of millions of dollars i put a million dollars in to start that company off with mm. my brother and my dad and and i always thought i felt like i was at the casino i thought well if i lose that i've still got my money over here and that's where i'm talking about the financial naivety of it yeah. i didn't realize that they'd come and take when it went down it went down so hard that they came and took all my personal money off me as well. Wow. That was hard in itself because you backed to zero. I mean, like I said, I was set. I was, for the six years since I retired, all I'd do is try and work out where I was going to go on holiday next. Actually, probably one of the unhappiest periods in my life because I wasn't doing it. I had no ambition. I was just sitting there. I retired, retired, not just retired from cricket. I was like, I don't have to do anything. I just had money and like, I was just completely apathetic on life. So probably too much time to think and... So then when I, when I lost it, then, I've, like I said, I've got to try and work out how I'm going to get out of this mess. And then you're alive. Mm. Then you really know you're alive when, where's my, well, how am I going to do this? Well, bankruptcy hits you and then, you know, you have to start all over again. You said you came from nothing. How did you find friends, first and foremost, but then, you know, the strength to sort of go and do it again? Well, it was weird because there was one, there was just one creditor. I mean, everyone was prepared to let us to try and play out of it mm-hmm. but there was one creditor that just said nah and made it very public went out of his way to try and thought that we'd done it in an attempt to steal money or something like that it was like I can steal it if I've stolen the money I'm like not very well because I haven't got any myself yeah. so but he just that person couldn't get it out of their head and that's fine you know that's I get it if I'd invest in something I don't hold any you know, grudge against that person I, was, I, I guess the one disappointment is that I wanted to play my way out of it and try and get the other investors their money mm-hmm. back um, but mm-hmm. it, it is what it is I think the low light for me was I was going up to Papua New Guinea up to Port Moresby and I'd go up there and help out some um, some of the poorer people up there the street kids up in uh, um, and I went to the airport I didn't really read the details of what bankruptcy entailed so mm-hmm. I got to the airport went my passport and went to go to the thing and the next minute I was surrounded by four feds. They're just like, mate, where they thought I was trying to skip the country to get out. I was like, and you can't travel, so yeah. you can't travel for four years or something like that. So what when you're bankrupt? Yeah, yeah. yeah really? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't know that. Yeah, it's different. That's oh, why it's I asked different. Why uh, I asked that's, that's, in yeah, that's seven years if you were found to be had done it like in a bad way, and it's four years just if you hand your hands up. Yeah, yeah, right. um, yeah, yeah. So they were like, well, it's just the GFC that got us. Um, hmm. So they said, you got to do four years. So I couldn't leave the country for four years. I could, but I had to go through a process of saying to people, I'm going away to earn money, which made it hard because one of my ideas to get back and earn some money 
come back to England where I'm known because I went to Australia to sort of kind of get away from that. But, um, yeah, so I'm going up to Port Moresby up there. um, I don't know if you know about much about Port Moresby, but on the scale of most livable cities, I think number one is Sydney and then maybe somewhere in Italy or something like that. The last is Port Moresby, which is the most unlivable city in the world. So I was heading there to help out some homeless up there and take up some cricket kit and I got the tap on the shoulder and I had to get dragged back through customs and they wanted to handcuff me I said that's not happening Yeah. so um, I said I'll walk out of here but I'm not being handcuffed so that was I think that was all time low when you can't even go and help, help some people, help people so yeah. that was definitely the all, all time low as far as the financial mm. side of things and then I got out of there I'm like okay what am I going to do now how am I going to get out of this and then that journey really began. Still to come on After the Lights Go Out on Talk Sport. This promoter said, I'll give you um, $10,000. Um, this person's pulled out, but they need a headline act. Would you come in and fight? And I was like, look, I don't think so. And he said, it'd be pretty cool to say you're the captain of England and you had a professional fight. And I was like, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Wouldn't it? <laughs> so I said, okay, I could get in a fight down the pub. So... Yeah. Why I've got not? gloves on, they've got a referee, and, you know, if I get hurt, they'll stop it. So I went there and I, and I knocked that guy out. After the lights go out, Leon McKenzie and Steve Harmison in conversation with Adam Hollyoke on Talk Sport. Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi, nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertz and the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to work in the channelised Bimbinga so the bypass will rise plug sale and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chattel sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. After the lights go out, Leon McKenzie and Steve Harmison in conversation with Adam Hollyoke on Talk Sport. You're listening to After the Lights Go Out on Talk Sport with me, Leon McKenzie and Steve Harmison. Tonight's guest is Adam Hollyoke. Adam, when most cricketers retire from the sport, the route of professional boxing and mixed martial arts is one which none have ever gone down. How did you get involved in that? Um, well... Obviously, we've spoken about me losing my money. So literally, when I did it, I just did it as a one-off fight, my first fight. But then the fights just kept coming as I kept winning. So, And I was on this mad roller coaster of going boxing fight, MMA fight, boxing, two MMA fights, boxing, combat eight. So I kind of just got stuck on the into the life. And I did it for four or five years. I fought Dubai, Jakarta, New Zealand, England, all around Australia. So... Yeah, it just it wasn't meant to be that way. But when you're hustling, you just got to go the direction where your life takes you. I mean, I'd, you know, I'd done boxing since I was 12, and I've always been into it. And 
I was just down the local boxing gym and and this guy, um, the, the gym owner, asked me, I you know, just saw me, I was actually doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and wrestling at the time, so I was just doing that. And then I turned up and they changed the time, so it was a boxing session. Mm. So the guy said, oh, do you want to stay? We're doing striking, so I know you're a wrestler, so you can come back. We've changed the time, it's in another hour. I said, oh, no, I'll stay. So then I stayed, but he didn't know that at that stage I'd been boxing since I was 12. So then... After a bit, he said, you've done this before, haven't you? So I said, yeah. He said, how much? I said, yeah, quite a bit. So he said, oh, would you be interested in coming down? We've um, got the Queensland champion coming. He's got a fight coming up and your build and size. Would you So look, I won't be able to go many rounds, but I'll come in and do the rounds that I can because I'm not very fit. So I went in and I I knocked him out. So um, You knocked out the guy that they said to... Yeah, to spy, yeah. <laughs> so, accidentally. So it was like, um, oh, so then brilliant. he said, Oh, look, would you be interested in fighting professionally? And I was like, Nah, nah, I'm too old, like, not interested, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then we sort of left it at that. And you know, I came back in and I was training, and, and, and it didn't cross my mind that the, the financial side of things. I was just like, Nah, I just thought I'm too old. And, and then he came back How in. How old was you at the time? Uh, I think I'm going to say 40, 40. Really? 40, yeah. So um, he then came in one day and said, look, you know, would you be interested in the fight? This promoter said, I'll give you um, $10,000. Um, this person's pulled out, but they need a headline act. Would you come in and fight? And I was like, when's the fight? <laughs> it was like, Saturday. I was like, what day is today? It was like, Tuesday. So I said, well, I could get... And then I was like, look, I don't think so. And he said, it'd be pretty cool. And he, this, might, this guy's become my best mate. He mm. said, pretty cool to say you're the captain of England and you had a professional fight. And I was like... Yeah, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> so I said, okay, I could get in a fight down the pub. So yeah. I've got not? gloves on, they've got a referee, and, you know, if I get hurt, they'll stop it. So I went there and I and I knocked that guy out. And um, and then when I came back to the gym, all the wrestlers and the jiu-jitsu guys were like, hang on, you just got a professional knockout in boxing. Would you be interested in MMA? So I'm like, nah. And then my, my, my trainer was like, pretty cool to say that <laughs> yeah. you're like England career captain, professional boxer. And I was like... Yeah, so he, I keep falling for the same trick. <laughs> so then I was like walking into the cage, like, going, what the hell am I doing? I don't here? know what you're doing to be honest. <laughs> what am I doing? What am I doing? So I mean, um, you did that, didn't you? You came out of obviously I was one sporting arena yeah. and going straight into to another one. Yeah, I've, I mean, I must there's admit, a few footballers that have done it. So there's no way there's I a, could even a, thought I've, about it. Curtis Woodhouse is probably the most successful one having that? Curtis Woodhouse. It was a it was yeah. a former. A professional footballer. He actually retired from football at about 26 years old and then went on to win a British title in his weight category, which was just like phenomenal. I came along shortly after. I turned professional at 35. I jumped into a boxing ring at 35 professionally. I'm from a famous boxing family. My uncle Duke being a former three-time world champion and my dad Clinton being a British and European champion actually Mm. fought Sugar Ray Leonard in the Montreal Olympics in oh, 1976, right. yeah. So I'm um, from a good. What, what many good footballers? Stop, yeah, what, yeah. I'm from good stock. I'm from good stock, mate. Don't worry about don't that. Don't break into yeah, your don't house. Worry about that. That, <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know what was interesting from my story is that, as you said, you've been boxing from 12 years old. I've been in gyms and in that mm. gyms and watching my dad and my uncle Duke and everyone from best part of eight years old. Yeah. So when you're growing up. And it's in your. I mean, I should. I'm really a boxer turned footballer, mm-hmm. really and truly. But mm-hmm. it went the other way around. There's no cricketers that have gone into 
professional boxing after properly. No, shall I say? Fred had one fight. No, but in in the level you know, from professional boxing um, and then into like martial arts, mm. what would you say out of the two is the hardest in terms of training and the fighting aspect of it all? Out of the three, I still think bowling in cricket is the hardest. What? But the, oh my god! Really? Yeah. Oh, Steve, what's going on here? No. Like, what? And I'm not just saying that because Steve's here. I've said that to. You, I've said that to. Elaborate, elaborating that term because getting punched in the face or getting grabbed or <laughs> strangled or kicked away. But if you're a good boxer, you you can have a fight where you don't get punched in the face that many times. If you're a bowler, there's eight times your body weight going through your front foot every time you let go of a ball, and the re- the rest of your body just shudders. And it keeps going, and then you're on different things. So the whole body. So you're getting just you're, with that pound just, that oh, compact. That, that. You are you are getting impact every time you do your job. Where if you're in a boxing ring, you could go in a ring, and you know, I'm not saying boxing is is not is not harder than, than cricket or bowling or anything, but for the impact that has on your body, if you're good at what you do from mm. a boxing point of view, you can get out the way of a punch. You've got no choice when you're bowling. You run in, and, and then the next day you do it again. The next day you do it again, and so it's constant after a while mental oh, as well. And, mentally, yeah. just I mean, I wasn't any, I wasn't a bowler. Like I was just a fourth bowler in a side. So I wasn't leading the attacks. So I didn't bowl the amount of overs that Steve had to bowl, and I had a horrible action. <laughs> <laughs> so therefore, but that's actually a bad thing bad because thing, the, yeah. just the amount of strain that I put on my body. So it mm. really hurt every. Mm. And you go, you got to turn around. You got to run and go. It'll literally be like saying, okay, I've got to let this person punch me in the face again. Again, yeah. And mm-hmm. then you've got to run in and do it. And it's so painful. But out of boxing and MMA, I found boxing harder, just purely because of the work rate. For me, stamina was a, was an issue. Whereas with uh, MMA, I felt that I could control the pace of the fight, little gloves, and I felt that because people were worried about my power, that I could actually slow the pace of the fight down a lot of faking, a lot of fainting and balking, and therefore, in a fifteen-minute fight, I could only have to might only have to work for two or three minutes of that fight. So, mm. but with boxing, the gloves are small, are bigger, and the, and people aren't and they're in and they're making you work every minute of every round, and uh, that yeah. for me was probably my downfall. Um, well, fair play on that answer because yeah. you had five fights, yeah. three wins, and two losses. Yeah. How did those losses feel? Because they hurt well, you me. Don't. Oh, I, gonna, I, thought, I thought you were going to say no, I was undefeated. I was about I, to like, bow no, to you. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I had eleven pro fights. Yeah. I lost two of my title fights. I fought for English title and Southern Air title when I was yeah. 38, 39 years old. Yeah. At the time of losing those titles, the last fight it didn't hurt me because I'd given my all. Mm-hmm. So literally, I gave my everything. Literally, collapsed in the in the ring. Literally, through exhaust, just knackered yeah. the first one hurt me badly because I was just you like thought you were unbeatable not that I thought I was unbeatable but I I knew I could beat this guy that was in front yeah, of me but yeah. father time said no you can't yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like I said to, I remember going back after about two rounds in and I said to my dad because my dad was my trainer and I said to my dad dad it's not there it's, something's wrong I'm not there it's not there it's not me I can't find it. I can't find it, Dad. That's what I can't find it. I can't. I can beat this guy. I can't find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but my, you know, when the clock's ticking, yeah, you got to solve that problem fast. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And I had that in my second fight because at that stage I'd been like knocking everyone out and sparring. I'd knocked the first guy out and that. And I'd gone and, and I'd had another couple of fights. Something called Combat Eight, which is like a mix between MMA and boxing. I knocked the guy out there. So I was on this roll. 
I actually probably have got a bigger ego. I'm thinking I'm working <laughs> in that. I'm probably think I'm better than I am. And I um, I thought at one stage, oh, it's only a matter of time before I fight for the world title here. Like, so, um, and then I got in there, and the same thing happened. I had an evening where it wasn't happening for me, and this guy was just tap and move, tap and move, and. I was just chasing after him, trying to take his head off. And mm. before I knew it, the fight was over and I'd been outpointed. And then it is really hard. It's really hard and humbling. Again, it's mm. another thing that you've got to try and learn how to cope with in life. Mm. So, Steve, uh, have you ever thought about putting on the gloves for you? No. But it was sometimes in when it was raining and in a cricket dressing room, you'd put the helmet on, put the batting gloves on. And if there's been some... A little bit of aggro, so you is know, that how you used to settle things? Yeah, yeah sometimes. Uh, Adam, is that how you used oh, to settle senior things? players used to do? Oh, right, in the ring, so they shut the doors, yeah. move the cases out of the way, open the thing, two helmets on, boxing gloves, off you go, and oh, eventually a senior player would stop it and say, "Is that That's what happened at Durham?" Is sometimes that, it happened at Durham. Yeah, we, we did it. But did you, did was, you have any? There was one time. Uh, there was one time. Alex Tudor, our great friend from Talk Sport, yeah, no, Alex. Me, yeah? yeah, no, Alex. Yeah. He um, he tells a story when. He had a little bit of a sparring contest with Adam. So the actual story goes back. Oh, you. please! Can't, I can't wait to hear this because after we finish <laughs> this, I'm gonna. Yeah, I do know him. <laughs> I'm gonna give it to him. I'm gonna give it to him if it's if it's what I think it is. He doesn't even need the mic. He's so loud, that guy. So, um, so what happened is, and you'll be able to um, imagine this scenario. So I took him and my brother down to a, a boxing gym in Tooting, like a real underneath a pub. It was like a just hardcore. So they were just, a, both of them were a little bit like, what the hell is this? Because my brother didn't was not into fighting at all. And um, we went there and it came to the end and end of the session and, and my my trainer said, oh, look, why don't you guys spar? Adam, don't hit Tudes in the face, just hit to the body and just give him a little feel for what it's like. So I said, okay. So I did it and Tudes came out like really defensive and but then he, and he wasn't throwing a punch so I'd have to lead to the body and then he was just like clipping me over the top. So at the end of it, for about a year or two years, it was two years of frustration. Oh, I remember when I beat you up that time in Tooting. Like, you know, Is that like, what you saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember, remember, big, remember Big Bro, Big Bro, remember when I beat you up in Tooting? Like that. So I was like, you didn't beat me up. Like, I wasn't allowed to hit you in the face. So this went on. Anyway, we had a rain break. So we got, had the boxing gloves with the big 16-ounce gloves on. And we said, and he was, and he's still now in his mind, he's forgotten that I wasn't allowed to punch him in the face. He's built it up in his mind that he's beaten me up. <laughs> so he got down there and he said, Cole, Cole, let me in, let me have a go. Let me have a go, big bro. <laughs> so I go in there. And then, so he came out and he was, I think he thought, remember back to the last time. So, but this time I said, look, I'll hit you in the head. Said, yeah, yeah, you can do what you want. Like that. So start sparring and he's, and he's, when he's throwing his jab, he's just bringing it back really low. And I said, look, you need to bring the, so I'm giving him tips while we're going. So um, he jabs out his left jab. And I said, okay, I just like mimed as if I'm going to like throw the right hand. But he just wasn't really picking up with what was going on. And then it happened again. So I just threw a little short right hand. I wasn't expecting. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to, to drop him. <laughs> yes, Alex. So he kind of starts coming. I'm like, holy hell, I've just knocked our opening bowler out. <laughs> he just went onto the floor. I'm like, oh, no. So, And it was as if the God was against us that day because the rain stopped. Sun came out. And we came, and literally as we were picking him up on the floor, the umpires came in and they were like, okay, um, we boys, we're out there in half an hour. And all the guys were like, holy, our captain's just knocked our opening bowler out. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's a brilliant story. So, just with a little relaxed right hand. Oh, it was probably, I, I, I say it was relaxed, but I was probably, there might have been a little bit of two years of frustration. <laughs> Still to come on After the Lights Go Out on Talk Sport. I was offered quite a lot of money to go out to Afghanistan and coach. 
basically they gave the money up front and they said if anything happens security wise that you'll be able to get on the next plane and go home the first day I was there suicide bomber blew up nine of our security I felt the blast go through my body after the lights go out Leon McKenzie and Steve Harmison in conversation with Adam Hollyoak on Talk Sport you're listening to after the lights go out on Talk Sport with me Steve Harmison and Leon McKenzie Tonight's guest is a man who played cricket for England and Surrey, as well as competing in professional boxing and mixed martial arts. With us tonight is Adam Holyoke. Adam, after your time in MMA and pro boxing, you returned to cricket and took up a few coaching roles in the game. Prior to this, did you ever see yourself returning to cricket? I didn't. Um, I thought my time with cricket was done. I thought I'd burnt my bridges. I really thought that well, there was no way uh, forward. I'd, I'd divorced with my wife and... As you know, with the divorce, I couldn't just take my kids. I was on the Gold Coast, so I couldn't mm-hmm. see how I was going to get back into cricket because I'd have to come back to England, where I was known in Australia. No one really knows who I am. Obviously, she wouldn't allow me to just take the kids, and she yeah. probably didn't want to go <laughs> come back with me. So um, I was stuck. And then it was actually my dad, who's, who's my best mate as well. He um, he just said to me, "Look, stop being a you know pathetic mm-hmm. and just get your act together." get on the phone back to England and say you want to get back into coaching. So I rang up this guy called Gordon Lord, who you yeah. all know. Yeah, he, yeah. He'd been pestering me for two decades to come back and, and coach back in, in English. He said, you'd be a great coach, come back and coach. So I rang him up. I said, Gordon, I'm ready to come back, mate. Um, I want to come back and do some coaching. And he said, unbelievable. I resigned a week ago. <laughs> From <laughs> no. He was the head of coaches. So he said, how well do you get on with Andrew Strauss? And I went, not very well, because all I remembered ever saying to Strauss, he was just sledging him yeah. from the, upper, the other end. So he was the opening batsman for Middlesex, and all I did was just, I wasn't a very nice person when we played. So I thought, I rang him up. I was like, mate, you know, I'm interested. And he was like, he was great. He said, mm. mate, we'd love to have you back. We'd love, and then I thought I'd be starting out for Peckham second 11 or something like mm. that, do you know what I mean? And um, he said, oh, we've got a series against South Africa. And I'm like, who's that? He's like, England. I was like, wow. So I went straight back in. My first gig back was with England in the T20 against South Africa. So wow. You enjoy it? I loved it. That was <laughs> when I realised I needed to be back in. I just I just loved it. I was just felt alive again for, and I, and I didn't realise that coaching could be as rewarding as, as playing. Yeah, in 2017, you went to Afghanistan coaching yeah. the T20, and that took an amazing turn of events. Mate, again, I mean, like we talk about the journey, um, I don't think under normal circumstances I would have gone there, but I was offered quite a lot of money to go out to Afghanistan and coach. And it was basically they gave the money up front and they said if anything happens security-wise, that you'll be able to get on the next plane and go home. We got out there and they told me the security would be, you know, outstanding. I asked some of the Australian um, security companies and English, some guys who were controlling the England um, cricket tours. They said, don't go, it's too dangerous. Um, I was like, I don't really think they know what they're talking about. It turns out they did because um, the first day I was there, they set a bomb off and killed nine of our security. I mean, we had amazing security. We had bulletproof cars, like guys around us with machine guns. But a suicide bomber blew up nine of our security. Um, I've never anything like that. Talk about humbling. Like I felt the blast go through my body. Again, just another experience that you just can't comprehend, really. So um, you didn't get in a plane and go home. No, I didn't. Um, you stayed. Yeah, the people out there have been amazing. 
I mean, they just love cricket. And it's not their fault they're in a, this country where all this is going on. And I became really close with them when I was out there. They'd spent years playing in this tournament. And you can see when it happened, they f- they were just gutted. They were just mm. devastated. Like, this is it. We're never getting cricket back here ever again. This is We had our chance and we've done it. So I was with Dean Jones, mm. uh, the late Dean Jones. And um, who else was that? Herschel Gibbs. Got, he just got on the plane and went home, which I, I don't blame anyone who went home. It's their choice. But I just had my... Um, I said of my dad's words in my ears. He was like, Matt, you stay till the job's done. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. My first instinct was get on the plane and get yeah. the hell out of there because <laughs> I, mean, I said, I don't want to make that decision now because I'm emotional. Mm. And my first, this fight or flight, if we're you know, in an altercation, then I might fight. But when someone's blown nine people up, it's not, there's no fighting. You just, mm-hmm. you can get taken out at any stage. And mm-hmm. I did feel very vulnerable at that stage. So, my first reaction was to get on the plane and then I didn't, I said, no, I'm not going to make a decision tonight. I'm going to think about it. And, and like I said, I spoke to my dad, who again is my best mate, and he was like, find out, to get all the facts, find everything out. And they said they're going to increase the security, give me his presidential security. So, I mean, but, it must have been tough, right? Because you got three children. Three children, yeah. Did they go through your mind at the time? They did. I mean, there's so many things, yeah. so many factors going through my mind. And, my mum wanted me to come home. My dad said, stay till the job's done. Mm. Um, a lot of people wanted me to come home, but then I kind of thought, well, I'm making myself sound like I'm some sort of saint here, but I'm not. I just knew that I would, if I backed out then, that I it wouldn't be... Wouldn't sit well with you. Wouldn't sit well with yeah, me. Yeah, we'll and, credit, and I, and I we'll can't, credit I'm, to you. Yeah, and I can't, and I'm like, like I said, I'm not sitting here claiming to be a, like, you know, I'm on here saying, oh, I did this for charity. and I did I'm not that person. Like, I'm flawed. Mm. I'm a, a horribly flawed character. I've got many parts of my character which I'm still working on so so I'm not trying to sit here and claim to be some amazing person because what do you do to work on your what you need to work on for yourself do you meditate do you, do you, do you have yeah. th- I mean I have therapy yeah so that's yeah. what helps me from time to time just to come out of my mm. story a little bit and yeah. sometimes I just need to chat you know yeah what, what, do, what helps you I mean I've done that as well I've, I've had I've you know I've, I've spoken to psychologists quite a few times um, I read a lot a lot of self-help stuff. I just seek knowledge. I seek information. I try and seek perspective from a lot of different people, and and I try and process and try and I try and solve the problems on my mm. own. Which I'm 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 not I'm not saying that's right, but it seems to be working for me. So I don't suffer depression or anything like that. I've had some times in my life where I'm understandably sad and mm. and feel like things are going against me, but but you understand depression. And just being sad, right? Yeah, like, I think so. I think I think yeah. I do. I think I do. And and I think I've had times where doctors inferred that I might have depression. And I'm like, well, you know, like, hey, my brother just died. I'm, I'm kind of like, mm. one way or the other, I don't care. If they tell me you got depression, you got depression. But I'm yeah. really, really vigilant. And, like, uh, and it sounds so boring and it's completely cliche, but I'm really vigilant with my mental health. Mm. I train every day. What's your ambitions now for your future? Um, okay, I'll, I'll put it this way. Like when the plane used to start bouncing around um, in the turbulence, I used to like hold my, oh, you know, is the plane going to crash? Are we going to die? In that moment, I would know it's because I was scared of dying. Now, when the plane starts bouncing around, I'm like, I don't care. I'm not scared of dying. I'm scared of not being there to look after my children. Mm. That's it. So it, it, that, that's a real like humbling moment where you know exactly why. And to me, it's just, I just want my kids to be good and mm. I want them to be, and I don't care. Like, I've done my stuff. I've done my, I've done my things. And if I, when I die, 
there's things that you all of us have done here which will be mm. in history they can't take that away yeah um what more do you want and now it's just memories with my kids yes. and, that, and that's it it's not the key to happiness but it's an avenue there and you've got a, a direction to to go for so i, I don't want to make millions of dollars. i mean if someone wants to give me it, I'm not gonna <laughs> yeah. but it's um i'm not i'm not after that adam on behalf of myself and leon who is obviously i know you very very well i just want to say thanks very much for uh, fantastic it's show it's been yeah. so so good listening to you man oh man it's, like, it's great to meet you yeah. I've really really enjoyed that and can relate to you in so many ways you know so mm. I wish you nothing but the best and I'm definitely going to take you up on the pad situation <laughs> for sure <laughs> oh, no, it's I'll, been great man you've been fantastic I'll bring the towel I'll mop your brow and I'll bring the <laughs> coffee <laughs> thanks good. guys Brilliant. thank you been great Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris, and Mop Master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.